Good day, everyone, and welcome back to the Satchin and Adam show for episode 54. So it's bright and early on a Wednesday morning. I yeah, don't, I I don't want to tell you how early it is because <laughs> you might think we're all a little bit weird. Um, but we have a really, really interesting guest today um, in Kirsten Hunter. Yeah. So this is our earliest podcast ever. We started this at 7.15 a.m. And the reason being is that Sachin, congratulations, just started his grad job at the Loke Digital. So now we're having to work around our schedules, do them in the morning and evening. But we were happy to wake up for what we think is going to be a phenomenal guest. So we've got Kirsten Hunter, as Sachin said, um, who's someone that is was the CEO and co-founder of Future Super. And before that, she previously worked at Bain Consulting, at a law firm, and did science, arts, and law at UNSW. And I think we really admire Kirsten's career because it's almost like something that we want to emulate, doing like the sort of arts law at university, working for a top consultancy, and then not getting trapped in that world, but then starting your own venture you're passionate about after. So very excited to talk to you, Kirsten, and thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me and welcome to the uh, before 9am world. <laughs> yeah. And so Kirsten, we'd love to um, kind of ask our audience, sorry, our guests at the start, if there's any kind of anecdote or story that kind of informs our audience on the person you are. Yeah. Um, so this is such an interesting question, um, but I'm just going to go with the first thing that popped into my head which is I, I've just recently finished up my time at Future Super. So uh, I'm now three weeks into my afterwards life, which we will get to. Um, short, oh, TLDR, who knows. Um, but uh, in talking to my, a couple of different people, my executive coach in particular was, uh, was asking me what I'm doing to relax. And my answer was, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing this long hike in May, so I've got to train for that. And I'm doing this long swim in, at the end of March, so I've got to train for that. And I'm planning to read X, Y, Z books. And she was just kind of like, you've basically corporatized your <laughs> between job life and set yourself milestones for your between job life. Uh, do you actually know how to relax? So um, I think that was that sort of really captures where I am in my life right now, which is I'm used to having a lot happening around me and all of a sudden I've just sort of stepped into this space where things are still and quiet um, and I'm learning how to operate in a still and quiet space. Yeah. Very interesting. I think that's something me and Sachin grapple with as well. Like when we've got free time, we try and systematise everything, sort of set a bunch of goals. And I'm interested, was that a sort of personality trait that you had before entering the corporate world? Like at university, were you that type of person or was your sort of environment shaped you in that way? I think it's a bit of both. <clears throat> so I, I grew up in Tweed Heads, which is sort of far north New South Wales. In, at the time, my school was very new. We were only the fourth lot, fourth lot of year 12s to go through. And I was a super smart, nerdy kid. And in a couple of my classes, I was the only person who was doing that subject. And so I think from, you know, from, from school, I had to be very kind of self-motivated and provide my own structure. Um, I, I then spent a number of years at university, which you both now know. So I started off actually studying medicine um, and then added arts to that because a medicine degree alone isn't enough. So I started doing a bit of Australian history on top of that. Um, and then four years in, took a year out of uni to do student politics. And I was the president of the UNSW union when voluntary student unionism came in, in the um, sort of mid 2000s. Uh, and, uh, and then doing that, I sort of got really interested in governance and law. And so that sort of 
led to me changing from what I, well, what ended up being a science and arts degree. And I went across to law after that with a view to sort of, um, I think what got me really excited was understanding the role that a company can play within a community like the UNSW community, not just for the students who were our members and the beneficiaries of our services, but also for the staff who worked for the union um, and getting to see that connection between how a company can be such a central role, not just for the people it serves, but for the people who work for it as well. Seems like you've cycled through all the most prestigious degrees. I think my parents <laughs> yeah. would love to have had you as a child. <laughs> but I think before we move on, um, I'd love to ask you, has that kind of type A personality that um, always wanted to do stuff, has there ever been a time when that's caused you to burn out or feel overly stressed? Oh yeah, regularly. Um, I think especially once you move into a corporate environment, um, if you are someone who's sort of quite personally driven and someone who I think in particular um, is driven by kind of internal milestones. I mean, you get it with external milestones as well in a corporate environment where you've got the ladder and the progression. Um, but if you're driven by internal milestones, there's a lot of other stuff that you sort of look to to determine whether or not you're doing good or whether or not you're doing badly. And I think corporate environments can sort of really suck whatever energy that you're willing to give them out of that. And so what I have learned is um, sort of being really aware of my own energy and recognizing, you know, cause being, and I sort of bring this kind of energy to my work as well. When you're someone who's a high energy person at work, if you don't have energy, then you can't do your job as well. And that was a really profound realization that it's not that it's not that I'm failing on this day. It's that actually I'm really flat. I haven't slept. My daughter was up all night because she was sick um, and I just am not in a place where I can bring my best self to work today. And so giving myself permission to take breaks, you know, to take mental health days, making sure I build in time for sleep and exercise. Those were learnings that I have, uh, have picked up time and time again. You know, I definitely had points of burnout when I was a lawyer at Freehills. I definitely had points of burnout when I was a consultant at Bain. And um, I've had fewer of them since I've been at Future Super, I think. One, because it's been an environment that I've had a lot more control over shaping. Uh, and two, just there's only so many times before you learn that lesson before it actually starts to sink in. And so I've gotten a lot better at um, managing my time and managing my personal energy, as well as kind of building the organisation around what gives me energy. Yeah, it's extremely important. And as two people that are just starting to jump into the real corporate world, I think that's an, uh, a lesson that we, we really need to take heed of because I think we're going to want to jump in and do everything. But we do have to realise that our energy levels are finite um, and that we actually have to sort of maximise for our overall sort of happiness and well-being, and not just work. Actually, last night before I went to bed, I read a chapter in a Tim Ferriss book about how to say no to things because, like, I was being bombarded with things like... Um, different commitments and I just like I just feel so guilty if I say no to something but I think as we get older that's something we're gonna have yeah. to do a little bit more yeah yeah it's it's a lifetime of learning to say no <laughs> to things I think I'm still figuring that out yeah and Kirsten I don't want to make you talk about your university days for too long but you did mention something interesting which I didn't know about you which was you took a year off to go into student politics um work for the student union board and I was just wondering what was it that sort of informed you wanting to do that? Because it seems like you potentially had a sense of justice quite early on, which potentially informed some of your actions later on in your career. So could you maybe explain a little bit about sort of your mindset and philosophy at university? Yeah, for sure. Um, so at that time, I was a medical student and 
uh, our classes were all the way up one end of campus and we didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, resources or, I mean, we had a lot of resources in the buildings, but we didn't have food outlets that were close by. Uh, we didn't have a coffee cart nearby, you know, all these kinds of things that uh, in our medical student lens, the rest of the university had that we were missing out on. Um, and uh, I, I sort of jumped at the opportunity to run for union board because when I looked at who had stood on the board, I mean, one, the gender balance uh, at the time was, I mean, probably not too bad, probably about 20% women, but still nowhere near 50 um, and uh, in particular, there hadn't been anyone from the medical faculty that had stood for union board for about five years. And so I thought, well, here's an opportunity to sort of jump in, um, do some community work on campus and, and maybe sort of give a bit of representation to my part of the university community. Um, but I also, I'd been really involved in the on-campus volunteering sort of programs and volunteering life. So I was an orientation week volunteer for a number of years. Um, I ended up taking on a um, an organising team role in, in the orientation week program, the Yellow Shirts program at UNSW, if anyone's familiar with that, um, which basically involved working for free for a summer to find sponsors for the O-Week program. And I just absolutely loved it. So um, it was sort of partly my part of the university community is... Uh, uh, is not being served at the level that the rest of the community was, but also overriding that was just this real passion for the place that university is and what you can get out of it. And I think for me as well, I had moved down, as I said, I went to school up in Tweed Heads, so Northern New South Wales, moved down to UNSW, didn't know a single soul, um, lobbed up to O-Week and just met my best friend for medicine in the lineup for my student card did all of these stupid activities and just sort of started, you know, feeling like uh, university was a place where I belonged. And I just really loved that the, the student organisation can play that role in people's lives at such a critical transition moment. And so I wanted to get involved and see what I could do to give back, I suppose. Yeah. And that's awesome because we're going to jump on a kind of a non-linear timeline, if you don't mind, and jump straight into Future Super because it seems like that, as Adam mentioned, informed an earlier kind of view on change and social justice. Um, what was the mission in founding Future Super and how did that all kind of come to fruition? Yeah, great question. So Future Super is a superannuation fund with a theory of change. Um, its purpose, so it exists to build a prosperous future free from climate change and inequality. So Future Super was started six years ago um, after my two co-founders, Simon and Adam, um, ran for politics in the Tony Abbott election. And fortunately, neither of them were elected, um, but they were sort of really running with a, a passion to try and um, get into government and stop the repeal of the carbon trading legislation that the Rudd-Gillard government had put in place before that. Um, losing, well, losing the election, um, you know, not being elected, they were in pretty unlikely positions anyway, though Simon did get very close to the Senate in the ACT. Um, they sort of thought, okay, well, that one didn't work out. What's the next thing that we can do in order to really influence the state of play in Australia? And for better or worse, we live in a capitalist society and money drives decisions. So they looked at superannuation and sort of realised that there's this $3 trillion sitting there in superannuation. It's the fourth biggest pool of investable assets in the world, third or fourth, um, just sitting there in Australia. And what's really unique about superannuation in Australia is it is owned by each one of us. 
So each of us have got a little slice of that $3 trillion and we can decide where that money is spent and how that money is invested over the time that we are working so that by the time we retire, the world that exists is one that we want to live in, you know? And so, so it's just this really interesting thing where I think in Australia, superannuation seems hard, seems complicated, seems boring, seems like something you don't have to think about till you're old. Um, but actually the decisions that you make today about where your superannuation is invested will influence the world that exists when you're old and when you actually have access to that money. Um, so I joined Future Super two years in, so I'm a late stage co-founder, which is a bit unusual in Australia because um, our startup ecosystem is a bit less mature than over in the States, but it's a much more common uh, thing over there. So I joined two years in, company was you know, less than 10 people, all working in a single office in Canberra. Um, and I sort of really came in with this real energy around this could not only be a really amazing super fund and give Australians who care about climate change an option to have their superannuation invested in line with their values, but this can change the conversation on a macro scale. You know, if we are wielding the power of money in a way that not only plays by the rules of the current system, but does it in a way that shows that a better path is possible, then we can influence not just the money that we control, but other super funds as well and other companies as well. And so what really drove me in my role was thinking not just about the impact we could have as, you know, little tiny future super, the startup superannuation fund, but what could we do that would then influence, you know, like HESTA, REST, Unisuper, Australian Super, the really big players in Australia to become more ethical, to move their super, super out of fossil fuels to introduce um, negative screening, which rules out, you know, armaments, old growth logging, animal cruelty. And then beyond that, what can we do in our little experimental sort of progressive working paradise over here to develop policies which then other companies could follow? So early on, we introduced uh, a number of superannuation policies designed to um, address kind of the, uh, well, I suppose, designed to address the, uh, the drivers of the inequality in superannuation at retirement for our staff in the business today. Um, and that was the first thing that we did. It got a lot of attention. We then saw a couple of the other um, super funds had started putting similar types of policies in their job ads, which was a massive win for me to see that something that we just figured out in, you know, in a coffee catch up with a couple of the women at Future Super had now started taking off in other companies as well. Um, and we've sort of taken that approach through the last kind of four years in the business as well. That's awesome. I think it's such a practical response to a way you want to make change in the world. Um, I think that's also how me and Sachin feel. Like you sort of realise that the situation, we sort of live in a certain type of society and you can't deal with it. So then how can you influence it the most? And as you rightly said, that is through the flows of money. And what better way than to target super? Like $3 trillion. That is an immense amount of change if you really direct that to the correct places. And if you think about that compounded over someone's lifetime, let's say if we started investing in our age yeah, um, it's crazy. in a fund like Future Super, by the time we get to 50 or 60, you can actually make some really meaningful change, which I think is really cool. And I, I think putting my economics hat on, um, I think a lot of people, so for, for in society, I think most people can understand that investment kind of drives growth, but the thing that drives investment is savings, right? 
And most people don't think of their superannuation as savings, which is something I don't really do. Like it's just this thing that's there, but I actually changed the future super recently and it was so easy to do. And mm-hmm. I feel so much better now. Yeah. I sleep better at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. awesome. And I mean, most people as well, you know, they get to your age, starting your first job, you've probably got like three or four different super funds from various <laughs> part-time casual jobs while you've been at uni. And you just think, oh, I can't, you know, I can't take the time right now to figure out what's right for me. And yeah. so you find these young Australians who go through just running down their super balances across multiple accounts, paying multiple sets of fees, when, as you say, it actually is so easy to consolidate. Um, and and the industry almost is incentivized to make you think that it's hard so yeah. that you don't consolidate. Because mm-hmm. if you think super's too hard to think about, too hard to understand, you know, I don't have to worry about that till later then you'll go through the next 10 years with five super funds paying five sets of fees and the industry wins, uh, but you lose because your super balance is lower. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's very powerful. Very few young people actually realise that they are an investor through their superannuation. And not only that, for most people in Australia, their superannuation is going to be their biggest asset that they control. Um, You know, until the point where you've paid off your house, that's likely to be true. Uh, which is a pretty confronting reality, but also very exciting to think about that piece of power that you have that um, that previously you wouldn't have even realised. Because yeah, so you don't know how much we have in Bitcoin, so maybe a bit different for us. <laughs> um, exactly. Just joking. Um, so yeah, so w- w- I think we'll come back to Future Super in a second. But in this journey um, of becoming the CEO, what were some of the kind of main skills you learned from your previous corporate life at Bain um, and in, were you a solicitor before? Yeah, so I spent three years at Freehills as a solicitor. Yeah, so um, what were kind of those, some of those skills you learned in those jobs that informed um, how you kind of led Future Super? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think everything adds on, you know, like I think we're all on a lifetime learning journey and, um, you know, mine has sort of been a bit more, uh, you know, um, meandering than most in terms of I've already, you know, moved major cities, changed degrees twice, changed careers three, now coming up to four times, um, you know, and I'm not even 40 yet. So uh, I think like I have a real kind of, you know, millennial career, even though I'm technically, I think, a Gen Xer. Um, actually, I'm not, anyway, they redrew the margins. I'm right on the margin. Um, but yeah, like I think at each of those decision points, um, I've gotten closer to what I love and further away from what I hate. And I think that's kind of been the basis of my decisions has been, will this change give me more of what gives me energy and less of what doesn't give me energy? So, uh, when I was a lawyer, I mean, I was, uh, you know, fresh out of uni, although had spent so long at uni that I was already a few years older than my cohort at Freehills. Um, but I think the big law firms, they teach you how to, how, to, how to be a worker, I suppose. You know, like I learned how to work hard. I learned how to respect the hierarchy. Uh, I got really excellent at photocopying, which is a surprisingly useful skill throughout your career. Um, and, um, you know, like I learned the value, I think one of the most important things that I took out of my time in law was the value of your peer network. Um, you know, I started as a clerk, I then went through the grad program and, um, you sort of don't realize it when you're early in your career, but the people who are at the same level as you are such a huge support and they're going through the same learnings at the same time as you. So, you know, um, you 
you know, they become more and more important as you get older. Uh, and then um, I sort of, I, I found myself working on this massive case um, that was the Bell litigation for any lawyers, um, longest running case in Australian legal history. All of, all of the events happened in the late 80s. And I was like, I was in kindergarten when this happened. Why am I, why am I working on this, you know? Um, and that was sort of my first big burnout was just realising that I'd spent three months over in Perth photocopying on my weekends um, for something that like, we shouldn't even be talking about this. This happened 20 years ago. Why are we still talking about this? So, um, so I made the decision to jump across to Bain and um, compared to law, I really loved the flexibility and the variation of being in consulting. So you know, you're doing a new case every between one and three months, sometimes a bit longer. Um, but the thing that was the same was that kind of relationship with my peers. And I started in a really small cohort at Bain. There were only three of us, um, two women and one man, which was also very unusual at the time to have majority women. Um, and, um, and I think the other lasting thing that came from Bain for me was the value of mentors and sponsors, sort of both up as well as down. So the, the value of being a mentor and a sponsor for other people, but also the value that mentors and sponsors played in my career as I was making decisions about staffing, about travel, about uh, where to focus, you know, whether I was going to focus on a particular capability or a particular industry. Um, I also, at Bain, I think um, consulting teaches you uh, to get really comfortable knowing nothing or being the one who knows the least in a room. You have to go into a client environment where you might have never thought about insurance or furniture manufacture or software production. And you have to go in there and get up to speed really quickly on an industry that you know absolutely nothing about. So you get really good at asking questions and you get really good at sort of figuring out who around you can help you help help you get the answer faster to get to a point where you know something. Um, and I, I think that's a really important lesson to learn. It has been really important for me, especially in my time at Future Super, because you don't have to know everything in order to add value. Um, and you don't have to know everything in order to form a position. And actually what I found in consulting was one, there's a lot of benefit in being an outsider in a company or an organization or an economic system and being able to look at that system um, with fresh eyes and just see the big picture instead of see the niggly detail around the problems that your clients are facing. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and, um, you know, another sort of thing that I really learned in consulting was uh, so value of an outsider, but also the value of kind of questions and frameworks in being able to work through to a solution. Um, and you can't always do that when you're an insider. And I've learned that now at Future Super as well, is that sometimes when you're in the weeds, you can't actually see the way out and having people who are external to your organisation come in and help can be super valuable. That's really valuable information. Um, yeah, as people about to start on that corporate journey, we're constantly sort of thinking about what are the skills that we can learn in this journey? How can we become sort of better decision makers? And I'd like to ask a similar question. So we just ran through sort of how your skills developed in your corporate career. I'd like to know how your ideas about climate change and inequalities and inequality developed, because you said that they were central to the mission of Future Super. And being in a corporate career, a lot, like you're very busy, um, but it seems like you still were being constantly um, informed about social issues and they were constantly developing in your mind. 
So were there any particular moments where these ideas became really significant during your career or were they just always in your head? Yeah, so I think they were always in my head to some extent. And partly for me, I think that's because, you know, I moved down to Sydney. I always felt like a bit of an outsider. I always felt like this whole sort of like private school corporate shtick was like, you know, just a bit wanky in many ways. And so, you know, like I'd sort of always, when I was doing medicine, I always thought that I was going to end up in a rural area as a country GP. And so that was kind of my mindset that I'm here for a short amount of time and then I'm going to go back to the community and sort of, you know, work within the community. Um, I didn't really have a view for what that looked like once I moved to law, but, uh, but what I did do was I always involved myself in a lot of the pro bono opportunities. And the thing that I really loved about big law firm and big consulting firm was those pro bono things that you got to do. So um, I represented a claimant in the Aboriginal Trust Fund repayment scheme, um, which was actually super, like, you know, really changed my mindset about law because, um, you know, this this woman, she's since passed away, but she, you know, she was a stolen generations woman. Her uh, grandfather, I think it was, had had his wages um, kept by the New South Wales government and their family had grown up on the mission. She now was living in social security. Um, and so I took her case through the trust fund repayment scheme. And in the end, her, uh, her compensation was only $10,000, but it was just life changing. You know, she was able to get her sister and her extended family together and, you know, have this big holiday together um, which they wouldn't have been able to do. And just being able to see the effect that those corporate skills had when they were put to work for a community benefit was really, really profound. Um, and so I had the same kind of mindset when I was at Bain. I did uh, some social return on investment work with a couple of small charities, which allows them to have better conversations with donors. Um, we used to do a community impact day, which I was involved in organising. I kind of spearheaded a new global partnership with a charity called Girls 20, um, which sort of follows the G20, but focuses on empowerment of women and girls. Um, and so, so I think like I'd always kind of seen myself as having this like two tracked career where I had the corporate day job. Um, sorry if there's a bit of noise, there's a garbage truck outside here. <laughs> but um, I had the corporate day job going and then what I was really motivated by was the community work on the side, either on the side at work or in my own volunteering. Um, what changed was uh, uh, when I had my baby, two things were different. So the first was that um, I came back to work part-time and I just didn't have time to make that juggle work. So it was all I could do to be a great parent and be a, a great consultant. I didn't have time to also do volunteering stuff on the side. And I found without that balance of corporate and community that my energy for the corporate, uh, the corporate side of my job started to really, uh, started to really wane. Um, and the second thing that changed when I had my daughter is all of a sudden I was sitting up hours at night with this newborn who, you know, was a really shit sleeper. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you just scroll your phone and I started reading a whole bunch of stuff about climate change. And at around that time, there was an IPCC report that had come out that was talking about, uh, in 2040, there was going to be mass wildfires and food shortages and, um, and no coral reefs. And, you know, it just all of a sudden dawned on me that 2040, my daughter was going to be 26 years old. You know, this isn't like some far off thing in the future this is something that's going to impact her. You know, I hadn't even left university when I was 26 and this is something that's going to be impacting her life 
in those stages when I had just had so much opportunity before me and it really, really shook me to the core. And I thought, here I am, I'm someone who thinks I'm pretty smart and pretty capable and I'm spending all of the energy, like all of my brain output helping companies make more money in order to get the opportunity to spend a little bit of that brain output helping the community. Like that needs to be the other way around. So I sort of, at that point, I started looking for something that was gonna allow me to bring those two things together. I um, had heard of Future Super, as I said, it was two years old when I joined. Um, and uh, I was actually job sharing at Bain um, on client facing. I was part of the first client facing job share pair that Bain had had in the global network. And my job share partner knew Simon, who was the original co-founder at Future Super. So I kind of left my corporate corporate role, um, you know, had a conversation with him. First conversation, uh, he was like, well, one thing's for sure. We don't have a job for you at Future Super, but we do have, you know, some consulting. And, and so I started just basically doing casual consulting work on the side. And then over time, kind of made myself indispensable and... Four years later, uh, was in the position of being recognised as uh, having a co-founder level impact and being formally named as a co-founder. So, yeah, so I think like, you know, that's a bit of a meandering way of answering your question, which is what changed. And, you know, I don't want to be super cliched about it and say what changed was being a parent. Um, but I think like in many ways it, it was being a parent. And I think it just parenthood sort of puts your life in perspective in that in a way that when you're young and you just don't think about it, you know, it's easy to think, well, I'll do this corporate job for a few years and then I'll do something that's actually my re real career. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it just sort of pushed me to make that decision a little earlier. Um, well, you just finished off with, um, I'll do this job for a couple of years and do my real career. I think that's something that almost everyone I know thinks about that's entering the corporate world. And I was wondering if you wish you made the jump sooner. That is a tough question. I'm going to say no um, for two reasons. One is I just, I learned so much and I could not have done the job that I did at Future Super if I hadn't have spent those 10 years as a lawyer and as a consultant. So I really, really value what I learned in my corporate life. Um, but two, I think is um, what I, what I did in terms of the volunteering, um, but also in terms of uh, like I did a lot of work within the internal company policies, less so when I was at Freehills because um, it was such a huge company and, you know, like, and I was so little and had endless energy. So I didn't feel a need to sort of try and change the company in that way. But when I was at Bain, you know, like I, I did a lot of work within the company as well to sort of help it evolve and be a place that um, had better relationships with charities, better approaches to flexible working and supporting um, people who are parents and in particular mothers who are coming back to work after having children. And so I think what I, what I did because I, you know, because I did see my corporate job as something that was a temporary thing for me in some ways was um, I sort of brought those two things together. So like I, I talk about myself as being a corporate entrepreneur so I was always sort of trying to look for ways to improve the company I was working for while also doing the community stuff as well. So I think like for me, that's a really important piece of advice for, for you guys and for other young people who are starting out on their careers, which is, um, you know, like maybe not on day one, but it's never too early to start to shape the company that you work for. 
Um, and I think particularly for, for young people, there's a lot of talk amongst sort of corporate leaders around millennials and how do we keep millennials and, you know, how do we make them happy kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of power that you guys have that you don't even realise. And I think um, what I encourage people to do, particularly around sort of climate in workplaces and, you know, recycling policies, um, you know, like climate friendly practices within your office, is just ask the question. And the worst thing that can happen is your boss or your manager says no, you know. And so I think the more people who ask questions about the way companies operate, the more corporate leaders hear those questions and you know you might not might not get a yes every time but you'll probably get a yes more often than you expect i just want to butt in and say first and i was actually on a bain seminar last week because it was the sort of thing my university was partnering with for the people that were interested in applying and they had a lot of emphasis on the social impact programs and their stuff they do with charities so that's probably a big testament to what you did when you were there because like it was pretty outstanding like especially for a top tier consultancy that's great i mean it's also a testament to the like the other young people who've come through and said you know what yeah. i don't want to be a slave to the corporate system i actually want to give back and i want to do stuff that is meaningful so yeah. again like that's a big change in in the sort of 10 years since i was applying for consulting so since we just talked about uh, climate change, obviously an environmental issue, we might sort of move to some of the social issues that I believe you're passionate and Future Super is passionate about. So it was just International Women's Day um, the other day. And a big sort of factor about uh, women in superannuation is that they end up with a lot less. So I was wondering if you could tell me about some of the things that you might be passionate in about gender equality and what you think are some of the things that um, Future Super and other companies could do to sort of fix. 47% less super than okay. um, at retirement. Yeah, it's such a big question. And, um, you know, going back to Future Super's purpose to build a prosperous future free from climate change and inequality, we had those two things together because they're actually very connected. Um, you know, the shitty capitalist system that we have drives inequality. Um, it also drives climate change. Climate change itself drives inequality because you've got, you know, certain parts of our community are hardest hit by climate change. Um, they don't tend to be the ones with billions of dollars in their bank account. Um, and so climate change impacts inequally based on those social inequality factors. Climate change is caused by the same system that causes inequality. So they are intimately related. Um, I, yeah, I am very passionate about the role of women and women's equality and justice for women. Um, that's something that has uh, been a big part of my life uh, in my corporate career. And I think even more so since having a child, when you sort of realise, I think when, when you're a young woman and many of your kind of uh, listeners and watchers will be able to relate to this, when you're young in your career, you think, no, I don't need these women's programs. I'm as smart as any of the men. You know, I can do this. I don't need this special support. But as you sort of get more senior, those structural barriers that were invisible to you when you're sort of earlier on in your career start to, you know, you start to feel them dragging. Um, and I think the more I started to feel those personally, the more I started to see those impacting my female mentors and managers who I'd been working for, the more I just sort of started to realise that this was not something that was, you know, just happening to me. It wasn't just my um, insecure overachiever, um, you know, sense playing up. This was a structural thing. And so, um, 
you know, I sort of said at Bain, I sort of spearheaded a lot of work around flexible working and um, support for, for parents overall, but for women in particular. Um, and so at Future Super, early on when I started, I remember um, thinking that we're an ethical superannuation fund and the biggest ethical issue in our industry is that women retire with 47% less super than men. What are we doing to try and fix that? How can we call ourselves an ethical super fund if we're ignoring this massive elephant in the room? Um, and so, uh, so we were at the time a very, very small player. We weren't in a position to sort of really influence on a large scale. So we sort of took that question one step further and said, well, what are the reasons why women retire with 47% less super? Um, and basically superannuation is kind of the accumulation of a whole career worth of injustice for women. Um, it's a whole career worth of uh, being paid less than men with a pay gap. It's a whole career worth of not making it to the senior levels in your organisation and so being sort of held back in more junior jobs. And it's a whole career worth of taking time out for caring responsibilities, either for children, um, for elderly relatives, and, um, and tending to be the one who, who will take part-time work to enable time and space for those caring responsibilities. And so uh, we looked at our own staff and we were like, holy shit, we're just a little microcosm of that, um, that system right here. We, at the time, we didn't quite have 50% women. Our senior leadership team was mostly men other than me. Um, and we had a couple of part-time workers who were all women. And so we introduced these three superannuation policies um, designed to address the, that gap early on. So the first was that any staff member earning under $80,000 per annum would be paid a higher rate of superannuation. Um, the second was that any staff member who was taking time out for parental leave um, would be paid superannuation for the full 12 months or the first 12 months that they were on parental leave. So normally you don't get paid super when you get parental leave, you just get the, the salary component. Um, and the third was that any staff who were part-time workers, part-time carers, we paid their super as though they were working full-time. Um, and we did that on a gender-neutral basis, so it was available to staff of any gender, um, but they did disproportionately benefit women who tended to be in, in those roles. And those are the policies that I mentioned earlier where I started seeing other companies um, offering those same policies in their job ads, which was very exciting. Um, more recently, we've sort of, we continued that work at Future Super um, through, uh, we've, we've, for a couple of years, we did some work around analysing the gender pay gap in the ASX 200 um, and looking, not sort of doing, not repeating the work that Wajia does around that, but actually looking at how those disclosures were changing over time. And in particular, one of the things that was really horrifying that we surfaced out of that work was that there's still a huge chunk of companies who don't even look at their own data when it comes to gender pay gap. Um, so one thing, looking at their data and two, disclosing their data to their teams, um, I think is something that is just such an easy win that so many companies aren't doing. Um, and for us at Future Super, I mean, we're a small business, but our journey around gender pay gap and advocacy for women started with a question from our team. It started from a member of our team um, one International Women's Day, uh, actually, no, it was an equal pay day, uh, standing up in an all-hands meeting and saying, you know, I've just seen this campaign which encourages staff members to hashtag just ask. So, you know, co-founders, uh, what is our gender pay gap at Future Super and what are you doing to fix it? 
And it was very confronting at the time, um, but it led to this multi-year change journey for us around um, how we sort of look to our own uh, gender imbalances within the company. Um, and, you know, one of the final things that I got to see before I left was um, we did a big remuneration reset after a capital raising um, activity. So for the first time, uh, we weren't cash constrained in the way that we had been. Um, and we, we brought our sort of gender pay, uh, gender pay gap within Future Super from 20% down to less than 5%. So we were able to actually, for the first time, step back and say, what are the principles that we want to apply to remuneration? How, what are the gaps in the way we work at the moment? And, you know, we're a small business, so we didn't have any situations where it was like, person A male is doing the same job as person B female, but getting paid more. It was nothing that was that kind of obvious, but it's sort of more of the, you know, what are all of the little imbalances that happen over a couple of years in a company when you're not sort of taking that step up level. So yeah, like I think it's, what I love about it is one, um, just how easy it was to kind of make these changes and you know that was something that was a bit unique to being in a startup environment I suppose and being a leader in a startup environment was um, with those superannuation policies that I mentioned I was able to propose them to the leadership team um, and then two weeks later people started getting a higher rate of super in their bank account you know like it was so fast whereas if I'd been at Bain in a global system you know it would have been like probably a year worth of business cases and costings and all that kind of stuff to even get to the point where someone would consider it. Um, so small businesses can be super flexible, but large businesses as well, the more, the more people who ask questions like the just ask, the more people who ask questions about where are we today, um, the more information you can get, which then shines a light on the way things are. I just want to um, ask you another question related with that. So the way I see equal pay is that people get paid equally if they're in the same position and they do the sort of same amount of hours and effort. Um, but I think you referenced that there are some more non-obvious things there um, that I don't really know about. What are those things? Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, it, the, the simplest way of thinking about equal pay is, you know, two people, same job you know, the man gets paid more than the woman or the yeah. man gets paid more than, you know, the, the sort of non-binary person who they work with. Um, generally, those examples uh, don't exist anymore, although there are still some cases where that does happen. Um, but, for example, um, in, in a consulting environment where, or in a law firm environment where basically you're in lockstep with your peers, there's not a lot of flexibility around pay, where that starts to creep in is um, some of the biases around performance and promotion. So um, men tend to get promoted to roles when they have, or men tend to apply for roles, I think the, the study is, when they have 60% of the criteria, when women will wait until they have 100% of the criteria met. Um, and that sort of reverse position is also true, whereas men tend to get promoted when they don't quite tick all the boxes, um, in order to give them a step up or a stretch opportunity, whereas women will have the higher threshold to have to prove at promotion. And so if you've got two, two people, a, a man and a woman, and he gets progressively promoted faster than she does over the course of their career, that can lead to a gender pay gap. And then the other thing is, um, you know, at, in a consulting environment at least, uh, well, actually it was the same in law firms, so professional services overall, um, your, bonus, your pay might be set, but your bonus is discretionary. And so 
how are those, you know, what are the discretionary elements that remain and what's the split in, in payment of bonuses and value of bonuses paid between men and women? Um, again, it wasn't something that I could really go to the global partnership in my law firm and say, give me your, you know, gender pay data across the system. Um, but I could do that when I was, you know, when I was a leader of a startup. So gender pay gap, um, yeah, it, it is really, it's very complicated. And um, the cool thing is that a lot of the really obvious forms of discrimination now don't happen. Um, but the worrying thing is that people still have those unconscious biases. They just, the biases find more kind of subversive ways to express themselves. And so actually chasing um, chasing gender bias, biases and, you know, other sorts of structural biases gets harder and harder the more we know because unless we change the system and change people's biases at the start, um, they're just going to find other ways of expressing themselves. Mm, and it seems like one of the gender differences you just meant is that men are a bit more sort of overconfident than women in applying for jobs, especially when they might not have all the requisite qualities. So do you think this should be an issue that should be mitigated by the firm level where they reach out to women and try and give them more opportunities in terms of promotion? Or do you think this should also be something that is pursued by women to become sort of more overconfident um, and maybe even more aggressive when pursuing those opportunities? Or do you just think they should happen sort of in tandem where it should be women sort of work on these qualities, companies work on reaching out more and being more aware of these sort of inequities? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think... Um, to me, I think uh, one of the really important things, I think targets are really important. So I'm a big fan of targets. I'm a big fan of quotas, um, partly because I think if you get people, not just women, people of diverse racial backgrounds, diverse abilities, neurodiversity, if you get those people in a position of power, the thinking automatically starts to take in um, more of a variety of experience and backgrounds, which leads to better outcomes for diverse working communities. Um, so yeah, quotas, targets, I'm a big fan of for um, organisations where a gender or a diversity imbalance has remained despite repeated efforts. Um, I'm a big fan of having the leaders in those organisations have their revenue or you know their, their salaries and bonuses tied to meeting diversity rank rankings. I think um, one thing you learn in consulting is if it isn't measured, it doesn't matter. Um, and if it isn't, you know, if it isn't tied to real world consequences, then it's not going to happen. And I think those same sort of principles can be applied within companies as well. Um, it is definitely a combination. Like for me, the way I think about it is um, for better or worse, this is the system that exists today that I need to figure out how to navigate. And so I need to, the only thing I control is, is who I show up to in work and how I you know, how I exhibit myself. So part, part of it is me learning to navigate that system. Part of it when I was earlier on was me learning to kind of, you know, build my own confidence and all those kinds of things um, in order to get to a position where I'm a decision maker and then I can start to influence the decisions more directly. Um, what is worrying though is um, there's been a lot written about this um, over the last kind of, you know, 20 years since I've been working um, when I was just entering the workforce, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In was a really huge, um, you know, really huge thing at the time for women. It was all about encouraging women to take a seat at the table, to lean into their careers, to have more confidence. Um, but over the sort of 15 years ago since that book was published or since 
um, Sandberg did her TED talk and then the book was published after that, um, what has been found is it's not just about women sort of changing who they are in the system. It's also about uh, the system actually treats women differently. So if you've got a woman and a man, um, historically the view was, well, he's more confident, so he's more likely to ask for a pay rise. He's more likely to get it. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time addressing women's confidence. Um, but what we're now seeing is that women and men, are, confidence is treated differently in women and men. So even if you do have women and men who are equally likely to ask for a pay rise, people are more likely to grant it to the man. They're more likely to see a woman asking for a pay rise and be like, oh, she's a bit full of herself, isn't she? You know, and, and that sort of idea that a confident woman um, does not meet our internal bias of what a woman is. A woman is supposed to be nurturing. She's supposed to be, you know, meek and demure. She's supposed to wait to be recognised, whereas the man is supposed to be, um, yeah, aggressive and confident and out to, to sort of steward his own career. And so it, it is both. I think it's women definitely need to learn to navigate the system that we operate in today. Um, but it's not just about fixing the women. It is also uh, looking at ways to fix the system. Yeah, such an important conversation. I think that we're going to see throughout our lifetimes, see a journey of all these corporations trying to um, put systems in place to unravel all these biases. And it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, so Kirsten, we like to finish off with a bit of quick fire about, um, this is something Adam usually leads, but I think before we go into that, I'd like to ask you a, a kind of a left of field question. Um, what does a utopia look like for you in the Australian setting? Or what, or what would you like to see um, your child grow up? What, what kind of world would you like to see your child grow up in? Oh, what a question. Um, I mean, for me, what I'm thinking a lot about at the moment is that capitalism is broken um, and, uh, and we've sort of thrived in, we've built this environment where the rewards go to the wrong behaviours. Um, I'd like to see a world where profit doesn't come at the expense of people on the planet and actually in the other sense that profit is, is rewarded to people and companies who do good, not just, you know, make money. Um, I'd like to see the link between profitability and impact way more closely together. And I think part of that is um, punishing uh, behaviour that uh, through taxation or otherwise that does damage the planet, that does create inequality within society. So I, I think capitalism... That's basically what our whole podcast is about. So Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I think a new economic system is possible and I'm seeing a lot of change now and a lot of it is being driven by your generation who as consumers and as employees are coming to this system and saying, you know what, like, I don't want to buy the cheapest product. I want to buy something that is ethically manufactured and is fair trade. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to pay the lowest fees on my super. I'm happy to pay a little bit more for something that's going to give me so much more at the end, you know. And, um, and yeah, I think that shift is coming and uh, it's really exciting to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, we'll start to get onto the quick fire questions, which is one of my favourite parts of the podcast because I like to understand the sort of information and the content which shaped people um, and what really inspires people. So I'll ask you four quick questions. You'll have around 30 seconds each. Are you good to go? Let's do it. Cool. What's one of your favourite books and why? Uh, I love The Great Gatsby. Um, I studied it in year 12. Uh, 
why. I don't know why. I mean, it's very much sort of rich and poor, good and evil. Um, you know, the, there's a bit of a role of women question in there. Daisy's sort of not a typical woman, but also she sort of ends up folding to the system. I don't know. It's just a beautifully written book and just really enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's the imagery in that book and the sort of imagination it inspires is pretty amazing. Very, like I've read that in very few books really literally puts a movie inside your head. Mm, yeah, I mean, I studied it in U12, so I knew it pretty well, yeah. but I could still like recite the first uh, paragraph and the last paragraph and a bunch of the book as well. So it's it was the first book that I read that really stuck with me in that sort of chunks of text kind of way. Cool. Second question, what's one of your favourite podcasts and why? So I haven't listened to it in a while, but I loved Masters of Scale, which... Yeah, we get um, that so often. Yeah, it's so good. There, there's an episode, I think it might even be the first episode with Brian Chesky of... Um, yeah, Where <clears throat> he does the 11 star experience. And if you listen to the uncut version of that episode, like you just feel his energy. I love it. Yeah, I recently just listened to the one with Bob Iger, um, the CEO of Disney, and that one, like, I just felt like Reid Hoffman revolutionised podcasting because it was literally a story and narrative. It felt like a play. It was like... Amazing. It. it was amazing. Um, third question, who's an inspirational figure that you've never met? Uh, ooh, so many. Uh, I'm going to go with Jacinda Ardern. She's my, you know, uh, inspirational girl crush at the moment. I'm sure you've had that answer a lot as well. Um, but I've actually just finished reading a book written by um, the husband of a woman who was killed in the Christchurch, Christchurch massacre. So I've been thinking a lot about sort of how Jacinda Ardern's leadership in that horrific tragedy was just so different to what I think we would see in Australia. And, you know, she was there, she was with the people. Um, she wore a headscarf, which is such a small gesture, but was so meaningful to the people who she was there with. And just her speech uh, after the Christchurch, Christchurch massacre still um, sort of gives me goosebumps when I listen to it. Lastly, what's one of your favourite hobbies or something that you love doing outside of work? Uh, so I really love ocean swimming. Um, my, my family's a swimming family. My dad was a swimming coach. I used to swim and do surf lifesaving when I was a kid. And I've recently moved, uh, to the Northern beaches in Sydney. And so I'm, you know, I'm in the very fortunate position where I can walk down different sides of my hill and get to different beaches and, um, go swimming and snorkeling, uh, at any time I want, which is just amazing. And, uh, the other day I saw dolphins when I was doing a swim from Manly to Shelley. So yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something that makes me feel alive. Yeah. That's awesome. I think now I know why you wake up so early. Cause I've noticed everyone <laughs> that lives near the beach wakes up really early. Like it's, I think it comes when you start renting or buying there, you have to wake up really early. And you did that swim the other week, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Probably a lot slower than you did, but <laughs> I struggled through it. Um, I stop and look at fish a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think on that route, you often see small sharks as well, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I've seen a Port Jackson shark, but apparently it's been, um, you know, bronze whaler breeding season but i haven't met any of them yet yeah. how is that cool isn't it just really dangerous no, no they're not they're not like um dangerous sharks oh okay <laughs> yeah they're really small ones. um kirsten this has been an awesome episode we'd love to finish off by just asking you if there's any one bit of advice or learnings or can be anything that you want to leave our audience with 
Uh, yeah, I mean, so one thing that I always tell young people who are starting out in their careers that it took me way too many years to learn is that everyone else around you is just figuring it out as they go along as well. No one has all the answers. So, you know, don't worry about asking questions or feeling stupid or not knowing. Um, you know, your managers and your bosses, they're just figuring it out as well. So, um, yeah, I think that that was really when I realized that was just like this whole world opened up to me that was like, I'll, oh, okay. I'll come back to I you if I get fired for asking any dumb questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. That thank you awesome. so much. That was a brilliant episode. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me.